Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spiravauer. Greetings, greetings, everybody. Welcome back to today's podcast episode. I have two new to me guests, but they may not be new to you. We have David Adams, the CEO of the Urban Assembly. Welcome, David. How are you? Haley, I'm very well. Thanks for having me here today. So grateful you were able to make time and join us here today. And we also have Jabali Sawicki, currently the Compass Director of NXU. Welcome, Jabali. How are you? Haley and David, wonderful to be here with both of you. I'm doing well, excited to engage in conversation with you and the listeners today. So grateful that both of you are here today. I say new to me, but in reality, all of us have crossed paths in education one way or another. As I started to get introductions to you both and look through your backgrounds and some of you, I already follow some of the work that you're doing or work that you've been engaged in previously. I realize education is such a small circle and it, that's a good thing, I think, because it brings people together. So grateful you're here. And I was hoping, Jabali, that you could start us off by telling about that small circle and your experience. How did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? So I'll, I'll start with personal, just given the conversation today. The personal development started with individuals in my life, teachers, mentor, coaches, my parents, and it was the relationships that I connected with these adults that became the source of inspiration and motivation, wisdom and care and support and belief that led me to become the person I am. And just thinking about what we're going to talk about today, it was not only the relationships, but it was the individual adults and the moments that they took that showed their interest in me as a human being, not just as a student in their particular academic subject. It was them helping me identify my strengths. It was them helping me identify the things in the world that I'm curious about and I'm passionate about. And it was just their care that led me to become the person that I am. Professionally, I've done a lot in 20 years, 20 plus years in education. I'm going to give the quick resume just so folks have a few of the stars in my professional constellation. Yeah, bring it, please. I was a teacher for three years, fresh out of undergrad at a school called Roxbury Prep Charter School in Boston, Massachusetts. Was a science teacher, a little bit of foreshadowing to the work that I'm doing now. Even as a 20-year-old teacher, I would tell people, I teach about 10% science, 90% how to live life. And I think that theme that thread has carried through. From there, I went on to found Excellence Boys Charter School at Bedford-Stuyvesant, part of Uncommon Schools, all boys school in Bedford, Brooklyn. From there, I helped found Zern on the founding team of Zern, spent some time at Relay Graduate School of Education. And most recently, the work I'm most excited about now is my work that I do at NXU as a Compass Director. And our work there through identity exploration, social emotional learning, and community cultivation we catalyze youth and adults to develop their purpose, invest in their future, and live thriving lives. So hopefully, we'll get to talk a little bit more about that. That's brought me to the present. That's who I am and excited to dive into some of the topics today. 
We will definitely get to talk a little bit about the work at NXU and some of the work you've done in the past. That is, as I mentioned, a very amazing trajectory of work and impact that you've had in students' lives. Thanks for again for being here. And now, David, I'm going to turn it over to you. Same question. How did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? Well, first, uh, sometimes as I'm hearing your Bali talk, I think maybe I want to be the professional and personal version of him. Uh, <laughs> done so many things, founding school, really uplifting identity, social emotional development. So I just want to give a shout out to my brother over here for doing great work because we got to lift people up. So seriously, I, I really appreciate that, that overview. When I think about my own life, I really see myself as uh, the product of institutions that invested in me. So Jabali talked about kind of people. And while I've definitely certainly had people who have invested and helped deliver me to the space that I'm at, I also see myself as really a manifestation of the systems that have kind of oriented me to the world, right? So 16, from about eight years old, about 16 years old, I was, uh, I went to camp, YMCA camp, right? Values oriented there, talking about caring, respect, responsibility, became a camp counselor and, and followed my father's footsteps in that space. And then 17 years old, joined the military. So I've been in the army for about 19 years. Again, kind of values-driven organization. My mother, of course, would be horrified by to mention the church, Christ Episcopal Church that I went to for, for all my life and got married in the church and really had the elders of that church um, invest in me in a lot of different ways that I did not appreciate uh, at, at 14 and 12 and 11, but appreciate more now as they help guide and shape the path that I hope to walk on and hope to be walking on. And so I think about myself really as this manifestation of these values-driven organizations, these institutions who have taken me in and said, hey, you know, here are things that are important. Went to Rutgers as a uh, undergrad, right? And another organization that really, to me, it's not just about the learning. Jabali talked about 90% kind of uh, life and 10% science. I would say the same thing about Rutgers, right? About experiences and, and connections to people who are different from me and how we move through those spaces. So as I've moved through my life, I think I've come to more and more understand how embedded and how grounded I am in the institutions, the schools, the camps, the, the armies that have invested in me and helped me to be the person I am today. There's so much gratitude amongst both of you for other people and how you've gotten to where you are and what you're contributing to the world. And that level of humility is something that, candidly, I see time and time again from very successful people, that they recognize that what comprises the person they've become are the efforts of many folks and institutions and spaces around them. And I would guess foreshadows why both David and Jabali, you do the work you do today because of what that impact was for you on for, for you as a youth. And so I'm grateful I'm hearing it from both of you that humility is appreciated, but I also want you to share about all the awesome things that are happening. So a little bit of uh, bragging coming up on the work that your teams and your community and your organizations are doing to help do that for other kids. So Without further ado, you know, Jabali, you kind of, you tipped off for us what our topic is today. The title of our podcast is Mental Health Focus, Building Systems, Structures, and Schools for the Whole Child. So I want to just take a pulse for a second. If you were giving a state of the union on education today, what key points would you make about this specific topic, specifically about the mental health of our students? David, I'll start with you for this one. Uh, well, Haley, I mean, I think uh, today is a very unique time in the educational sector. The, the impact of the, the pandemic is unprecedented in terms of cutting off of ties, the increase of social isolation, 
uh, the impact of mental health, social and emotional development, academics. I don't know that we can ever overestimate what the last two years have meant, not only for a public education system, but for the students and families that it serves. And so uh, I am an optimistic guy. I like to think about how to solve problems, how to move forward. But in this time, in, in this space, in this moment, I think we need to really see the problem and the challenge very clearly with regards to the pandemic's impact on social, emotional development and, and mental health. We know from research uh, that I've helped conduct and as well as other folks that the mental health of young people has taken a big hit in the time of the pandemic. And, and if you think about social support systems that we organize in society, and I said that I am the product of institutions that invested in me. And think about narrowing those social support systems from the community. Brenner talked about uh, the ecological, social ecological model of, of social development, right? Everything from the macro to the meso. You get smaller and smaller to your church, to your playground, smaller and smaller and smaller to literally just your family, right? Literally just your blood relatives. And those are the only support systems that many young people have had for the last two years. And because of that, if your family is really well-functioning, relationship skills are strong, interpersonal skills are high, conflict resolution is, is where it's supposed to be, you experienced a pandemic that may not have made the impact that I'm talking about. But if, if, if your family had struggles, or even if your family was typical like mine, and we were just struggling to deal with each other for two years straight, that isolation had an impact. And it's being manifested in some of the data around suicidality, as particularly for our young women, particularly our high school age women, much higher increases of suicide ideation. We're seeing increases of young men attached to antisocial institutions like gangs and institutions that are not necessarily helping them be the best versions of themselves. And we're just getting back to how schools are reattaching young people to the promise of public education. We're just getting back to this, this idea that coaches matter and Boy Scouts matter and, and your basketball team matters and your church matters, your civic institution matters, and that every single part of society has a part to play in elevating the social, emotional well-being and development of young people. So uh, difficult time. This is the state of education as it is. It doesn't have to be the state of education as it will be, but it's going to take the energies of me and you, Nepali, to make it better than it is today. Yeah, love it. And, and, and David, I, I appreciate the, the articulation of the challenges, and I also appreciate your expression of, of, of hope. You know, and I think that that's, that's the place that we find the world in. That's the place that we find education in is... How can we hold both of those? You know, how can we question the status quo? How can we question what the generations before some of the problems that they've created? How can we trust, question some of the decisions that are being made while also simultaneously being hopeful? And that's us as leaders, that's educators, and you know, ideally, that will trickle all the way down to students because, you know, if we zoom out, you know, schools and the students that are sitting in our seats now are the only mechanism we collectively have to solve some of the problems that we're seeing. And, and so, um, you know, I, 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 just to echo what you shared, I think a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are struggling. The, the alienation the disconnection that all of us have experienced, most acutely students who 
are at a point in their lives where developmentally those social ties are so critical to them, those were all severed. But the reality is many of the problems that the pandemic has shed light on existed before the pandemic. And so part of what we have to reckon with is, you know, the, the calls for help, the lack of supports, the failures have always been here. And, and so although the pandemic has been incredibly traumatic, if we're hopeful and optimistic, I think it's, it's finally shining light on some of the things collectively, societally, we need to address. And, and you know, I'll, I'll just bring another group into the conversation and that's the educators. You know, that's our teachers, that's our staff and our schools. One thing that I, I think has become clear to more people over the past two years is the, the care and the gratitude and the love and the respect and the admiration that all of us owe those that are choosing to do the work of education. And, and as we attempt to fix some of the things that have been plaguing our students, I think there's also work that we need to do, not only to elevate the profession, which many of us have been championing for a long time, but just to, to appreciate how fundamentally critical the well-being of our adults who are caring for our students is in this equation. And so, you know, we've lost teachers, we continue to lose teachers, we're continuing to lose school leaders, the learning loss, all of these are real, they're substantive. At the same time, if I could add my little twist of optimism here, the schools that I come into contact with, the educators I've come into contact with, I think many of them are recognizing at a higher degree that the way things have gone is not working. And I think I've, I've felt in, in the connection with more educators, particularly the past, I'd say, 12 months or so, a desire and a commitment to connect more fundamentally and more deeply with students on a human level. And I think that's, that's the shift that I'm experiencing is, is not centering students, but centering human beings that happen to be of age that we're working with. And that, that, that shift, the whole child development is just recognizing the complex psychological, emotional, and spiritual makeup and component of what humans are and recognizing that you know, our mandates to succeed academically, whatever our metrics are, are, are we're not gonna achieve those until we start showing greater reverence for them as human beings. When I listen to both of you share about your state of the union, so to speak, on education and the mental health of our students. It is obvious that we recognize this is a very, very crisis level situation for our students' mental health. And there are contributing factors that have led us here. The pandemic being one, the way our schools are built, the increasing burdens on our teachers uh, on a daily basis. I've heard a couple of these items named from you. And so obviously it, it, this isn't a magic wand moment. And in the case, David, of the Urban Assembly, you are building schools with this in mind. So let's let's jump to that then. Let's talk about what it looks and Jabali, obviously you've built schools as well. So what is it, what does it look like? What does it feel like to build a school, a system, a structure that cares for the whole child? I want to name, and, and, and you said this a little bit earlier, Haley, that when we are solving for 
what it means to produce a young person who's ready to move into the community. When, when a young person moves through 15 years of public schooling and almost $700,000 of, of public funding, and they are ready to move and take their place in society, there was never a time where the social and emotional development and the social emotional aspects of that young person uh, were irrelevant to that answer, that equation. Right? Jabali said that students are always the solution to some of the challenges that we're facing in society, right? We're living in our moment, we're living in our time, we're living in our space. And our job is not just to honor those who delivered us, but to deliver a society for our young people that's better than the one that they have right now. So at the Urban Assembly, we have always believed and we've always invested in this notion that who people are matter, uh, not just what they know, uh, not just what they do, but who they are, right? And how they show up to community, we talk about the problems of, of bridge building in terms of engineers. And at UA, we talk about the problems of build, bridge building, not just of, of, of engineers of the physical space, but of engineers of the social space, of the social fabric. It's, it's only been about 70 years, only been about 70 years since Black people across this country were fully integrated into the civil society that is the United States. It's been about that same amount of time where immigration caps were lifted from countries across the world um, that increased the amount of non-white immigrants coming to this nation. It's only been about 70 years. I mean, people talk about Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges is still alive, right? She's a woman. She, she's alive and kicking and living her legacy. And so we are brought together here today with this new experiment or newer kind of version of the American experiment that is really trying to incorporate all of the we, of the we, the people. And, and that more perfect union that we're looking to negotiate was not inclusive of all the folks in the past, but are, is trying to be more inclusive today. So in order to do that work, it's not just about reading, writing, and math. It's not just about uh, how fast you can solve an equation, not just about what your math scores are in the SAT. It's about what kinds of people are we preparing and then bringing out into the world who are prepared, ready to say, yes, put me in. I want to be the one to help solve this question of who we are in community. I want to be the one to solve this question of who is the we and the we the people. I want to be the one to help solve this question of how we bring together more perfect union. What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like in 2022, 2032, and 2052? And that's part and parcel of what our school systems try to accomplish. And that's always what the Urban Assembly has been centered on. Audacious as as this work has to be, right? It has to be audacious. The goals have to be high because although progress is incremental and over time, you have to be aiming towards something that actually creates and builds towards the system, the structure, the school that you that you envision. Jabali, how does that fit with your your own personal mental notion of schools and how we create them as well as that of NXU? Yeah, and and you know, I'm I'm, I'm just just reminded when you said audacious. The, the beauty is there are individual teachers who have been doing this work for, for time immemorial. And, and part of the work that we have to do is find a way to systematize it, to, to take the best practices of those who understood the power of this type of work and find a way to have it become a part of both the school culture, network culture, just how we think about education. So, and and just to name something else that's been happening, you know, we 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 can't leave out the racial reckoning that has made this particular moment in time unique 
to the challenges ahead. But the pandemic and the racial reckoning we've experienced have made it apparent, uh, again, to far more of us that we must develop the whole child. There really isn't an alternative. And at NXU, just to give a little context about the work that we do, our work is based on five developmental constructs that are critical now more than ever. First and foremost, we need to foster our students' sense of purpose, which will function as both an intrinsic motivator and a North Star. And Dave, when I, when I heard you talk about how you can be a part of the school system and still had never have received any intentional SEL support, part of the reason I'm engaging in the work with NXU is, you know, I spent a long time trying to identify my own purpose in life. And so it's possible in this day and age that students can go to the best schools, best colleges, the best high schools, and they could still walk across the stage at college graduation should they choose to do so and still have no idea how to answer you know, the most fundamental question, the existential question all of us as humans have to answer, which is why am I here? What is my purpose? And when we think about the outcomes, the type of children that we want, I think we also have to consider and build into our models and build into our work, helping them be able to answer the big questions in life. So first, our work is about purpose development. Second, it's about identity development, which will hopefully allow them to effectively navigate with a clearer sense of self, the complex issues that we're talking about of our time. Third, SEL skills, which are needed more now more than ever. Fourth, social capital, so they can begin to actualize their purpose-driven life aspirations from the support, David, you talked about that broader community, communities in which they're embedded. And lastly, anchoring career exploration around the two concepts of identity and purpose. And so we've seen and have been encouraged around the awareness of this importance of each of these developmental areas and constructs from teachers, educators, and school leaders, but also on the flip side, because of the learning loss, because of how severe it is, there's a tension in terms of what we should actually be focusing on. And we want to be true is cultivating the whole child. Like we know that if you cultivate the whole child, that leads to academic development. But without intentional systems and structures, whole child development so often gets deprioritized. So the work now is how can we get schools and uh, districts to prioritize this work. One way that we've done it is we've built curriculum to make it easier for them, but folks are starting to recognize the importance. Now it's about how do we get them to make it a priority. And if Haley, I could jump in real quickly here. Dubai and I agree with a lot of things, but there's one thing that I would nuance in terms of that response. Uh, he said you could go to the best schools, the best colleges, and not be developed in your social, emotional kind of competencies or domains. And I, I just want to disagree with that. Those are not great schools that are not focused on pairing social and academic development. Um, those are not the best colleges that don't recognize that who people are is as important as what they know. I think our work, our effort, our combined kind of dedication will make it so that all schools know that that's what it means to be educated. So I just want to nuance that uh, to those schools out there who are not focusing on the social, emotional, academic development of those people, young people, you are not quite the best. So now you know what the standard is and, and now you know who to go to to get you to the outcome. Yeah, we have two examples right here. 
we're, we're, we're calling them to task. <laughs> but I think there's so obviously there there are we could have a whole podcast on pretty much everything that was just listed in each of your responses to my question. But I want to zoom in a little bit because I think that at this point, some folks understand, and I say that with like kind of a little bit of lilt in my voice, but some folks understand that social emotional learning, whole child education is not just a lesson once a quarter. But what does it look like? What is sequential, continuous, explicit instruction of these ideas look and feel like when it's woven into academic content? Because it is not a sprinkle it here and there when the teacher remembers or the AP knocks on the door. It is a, a fabric of a school when you do it right. So what does that look like and feel like when it's done right? And I'll leave this open to either one of you who wants to take that question first. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll jump in with 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 a slight variation to the question because the work that we do is sequential, it's continuous, it's explicit, but it's still supplemental. And again, for for many schools, the the most important first step is making this work a priority. And again, I've we we've been encouraged. That we're seeing many more schools creating a space that is separate from academic classes to integrate these ideas and concepts in part to demonstrate that it is a priority for their schools, their staff, and their students. And so, again, for us at NXU, sequential, continuous, explicit, uh, explicit, but still supplemental. And our hope is that some of the things that they learn in their NXU coursework, if they were to work with us, become sticky enough to apply throughout the day and in their lives in other contexts, right? So for instance, in one of our modules, students are learning strategies for coping with an intense emotion when there isn't space to process it fully, which is a useful life skill. So ideally in math class, when a student receives a disappointing grade, or they start to struggle with a problem or concept, they will employ these coping methods. The teacher at that point, would also be familiar with the methods and would be positioned to praise and reinforce the, the student's choice to do this. But this kind of application comes only after repeated practice, which requires a dedicated separate space to engage intentionally. And let me just also say that I think it's important that, for example, math class is about math content and learning math concepts. And I, I, I do think we shortchange kids academically, especially low-income students of color, when we take time away from teaching rigorous academic content. But I think the best things we can do is to create dedicated spaces for purpose work, be clear with students about what they're learning, why they're learning it, and make it sticky enough that they can begin to transfer it to other school and non-school contexts. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Dabali's right on the money here. I like to think about this in the same way we think about basketball skill development, right? So I got my kids, Elijah and Isaiah, they're nine to 10, they're out on basketball on the weekends and they have a coach. And how does that, how does that day look? So in the beginning of the, the, the class, they're practicing either dribbling, shooting or passing skills, maybe doing some conditioning. At the end of the class, they integrate those skills into a game, right? Where the coach is calling out the skills that he was ta taught in isolation, right? And explicit development and helping 
my sons integrate these into the problems of either the that play or that 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 set or that situation right so right it's it's not that you're dribbling and all you ever do is dribble right it's that you're dribbling so you develop fluency so that you're not thinking about dribbling you're thinking about how the play is evolving around you and it's the same thing with social emotional skills Let's think about eye messaging, right? I am feeling frustrated when I feel frustrated because, right? Eye messaging is a skill. You can learn it. You learn it in negotiation and you learn it in therapy in terms of, of being a therapist. You learn it across domains of functioning, right? It is not an easy skill to execute under conditions of stress because you want to blame somebody else. You have emotional responses. You, you, you. I've been married 12 years. I have a beautiful wife, Tamika, and I know. I, I spend time really focusing on how I deliver my eye messages when we are rarely in conflict, but when we are, I deliver those eye messages because I practice them, right? And so this notion of practicing my eye messages in order to develop the self social emotional competency of resolving conflicts is one that allows me to utilize those eye messages across domains, generalize them in order to solve problems in terms of intra and intrapersonal problems. So the same way we talk about shooting, uh, is a skill and you sit down and you practice your shot and you practice your shot and you practice your shot. And guess what? It's a lot harder to shoot a shot when somebody's trying to block you than it is to shoot a shot when there's nobody there. It's a lot harder to shoot a shot when you're under conditions of stress, when your math test is coming through, when the time is coming out, when people are yelling at you than it is when you're practicing it. But that's why the fluency matters. And Bali says something important. These are skills that are developed and can move to fluency and automaticity with practice, extensive and practice that is focused on deliberate kind of understanding of what we're trying to do. So in a math test or in a math class, uh, if you're constructing an argument, you might integrate that skill the same way you integrate the skill of dribbling while you're trying to get to the basket, right? I agree. I disagree. I want to add on. Those are conflict resolution skills, accountable talk stems. When you are in a conflict in terms of your classmate, you might want to use your restorative practices approaches and the skills that are focused on naming your emotions and saying, I feel frustrated because. Uh, but all this doesn't come from integration per se, right? Integration is the result of our ability to know what those skills are, practice them, and then deploy them under novel conditions of emotionality. And that's that's what we want our young people to do. That's how you solve problems. That's how you move from doing to stopping and thinking and acting. And that's how we elevate our problem-solving skills for young people across the country. And, and, and Haley, if I could just just jump in and, and you know, we've, we've, we've talked about an awareness that this is important. And I think, you know, David alluded to the research, or I mean, the, the, the research at this point is incredibly robust. Once there's an awareness, there's a shift into prioritizing. And, and I'm just going to name a, a couple of systems and structures for prioritizing. You know, we're, we're a curriculum, and, and often many schools will work with a curriculum provider to help staff and students develop these skills. So the first step is you need to identify structurally where this type of content is going to fit into your specific school. At NXU, we do a lot of work around helping and supporting schools make those decisions. Then you need to think through the more logistical structural issues, scheduling, cadence of content. Schools need support there. Then you need to think through curriculum development or the securing of a curriculum and also how you integrate the curriculum. 
Then schools need to be intentional about training their staff, which optimally will get them emotionally invested and technically prepared to teach and facilitate. Then there needs to be structures in place for ongoing support. And then finally, some form of assessment that provides evaluation and feedback, but also becomes a mindset perspective because it puts the work that teachers are doing on equal footing with the academic priorities. And, and I say all that you know, to, to us and hopefully many of our listeners, that seems obvious because if we were talking about math and literacy, those are the exact steps we've been following for as long as we've been in education. And so part of the work is how can we apply these same systems and structures that lead to great instruction to the work that we're doing with SEL because we know how critical and essential this work is and how developing a whole child is, is, is what we need to become, as David articulated, the best schools. You just laid out a perfect blueprint and you mean that it is exactly what we do for adopting curriculums of academic nature. And so while it is not necessarily novel, I think it's important you name it to apply the same principles for social emotional learning as well. You know, you named one piece about the research. The research is incredibly conclusive. Why then is there such a debate publicly right now about social emotional learning? Well, let me jump into this. I mean, I think the number one challenge is um, defining what social and emotional learning is, right? So we talk about intern intrapersonal problem solving and skills that enhance and enable uh, that problem solving. I think it's not clear to folks the relationship between self-awareness and being able to name your emotional state. I can name my needs and emotions, being able to identify your strengths and challenges. It's, it's not yet clear to folks how social awareness, it's a domain that's reflective of your perspective taking skills, right? Your ability to understand uh, the social cues that are being displayed around you and how to interpret that in order to make good decisions. When we talk about self-management uh, as an idea, it's not always clear to people about being able to manage my needs and emotions, being able to set and achieve goals, right? Being able to uh, regulate my own emotional state, initiate, um, as well as as move from from the what I'm feeling. And then when we talk about things like responsible decision making, it's not always clear to people how executive functioning and emotional functioning are integrated and how what you think and what you feel uh, interact to come to a, a consensus on what you do. And so social emotional learning has been this thing that is whatever is related to your feelings, uh, whatever has to do with relationships, that's social emotional learning which is different than relationship skills, like being able to active listen. Like you go to the school for therapy, right? Uh, studies of school psychologists, they will teach you how to actively listen, how to paraphrase, how to make eye contact, how to nod so that folks are being attended to. Uh, and, and they will test you on your quality of active listening. I went to civil affairs school, uh, civil affairs qualification course, and as an army reservist, and they tested me on how well I actively listened, how good were my open-ended questions and how consistently, how consistently I, I deployed them in order to work with the folks that I was working with. So uh, Dubai talked about this, but I want to name this. It's our ability to talk about these skills as discrete, learnable things that you can develop with practice and fluency, receive feedback on and deploy them in conjunction to the problem sets that you're working on. Uh, there are social and emotional learning adjacent things, certainly like the quality of your learning environment, 
your school climate, the, the quality of context of relationships writ large, right? Those things are inputs to student social emotional development, not quite the same as my actual ability, Haley, to sit with you and develop my active listening skills. And that skill is the same for used car salesmen, it's the same for army interrogators, it's the same for teachers who are listening, it's the same for therapists, it's the same for anybody who wants to build a relationship effectively in a professional sense, will need to master active listening as that, that skill. So uh, that debate that you're talking about has one part, lack of clarity of what it is. And then they have a second part where folks have decided that they're running for Congress, uh, they're running for president, they're running for governor, and they want to turn out parents against things that are not quite understood. They want to turn out parents around things that scare versus things that inspire. They would sacrifice their children's social emotional development, their, their, their progress in life in order to win seats in, in politics. And so those are different problem sets. Uh, those are problem sets around how division is easier than unity in order to move forward. And that's not quite the same as some of the challenges when we're talking about what is the skill, how do you develop it? How do you practice it and develop fluency in it? Yeah, lo- love, love that framing, David. I- I'll just add two additional thoughts that are a part of the jambalaya of, of the challenges here. I-, I think societally and culturally, we've, we've fallen victim to not valuing the things that we can't measure. And we're, we're still in-, in the early stages. You know, the research is compelling. But the movement in terms of developing the measurement systems that are able to measure and convey progress along these different vectors, that's still relatively new. And I think intuitively, if you were really to ask anybody about what matters, what matters for your kids, what matters for your family, they would name all the things that we're describing as falling into the SEL bucket. But I think there's a gap between intuitively what people recognize as important and kind of how they think about either politically or in terms of education. But part of the challenge is it is hard to measure these things because these things are complex. It doesn't mean they're not valuable. It means we need to get better at measuring because if we can't measure these skills and we know they're important, we're going to be underserving our students. So part of it, I think, is that because they're hard to measure, they are also very hard to teach. And you know, I, I, I think we, we should also recognize that, that part of our work collectively as a movement, those who understand the importance of this, really need to be committed into helping adults in our schools become better facilitators of this type of teaching and learning. And that takes commitment, it takes investment. Yeah, so I, I, I think I think those those are some of the challenges as well. And Hale, before we get to the next question, I just want to elevate this research here because about a year ago, I just want to talk about how powerful these effects are. The researcher coming out of Penn State looked at the exposure of students in Head Start to high quality social and emotional learning programs. Um, and they followed those students until they were in high school. And one year of quality social and emotional development in terms of skill development in high school, they were able to measure different effects in terms of what students who received those skills displayed in terms of behavior, uh, attendance, um, discipline, decision-making writ large, and then students who didn't. And then uh, when you added in a parent component where you're training parent 
and social emotional skills in the context of parenting. Uh, not only did some of these behavioral decision-making uh, constructs shift, uh, but students' grades were starting to get affected. I'm talking about 15 years down the line of one year of intervention in terms of social emotional skill development. So uh, these are powerful effects here, right? We're talking about the difference between a young person making decisions that may not help them move on in life and a young person making decisions that enhance not only their standing, but their children's standing and their children's standing afterwards. So uh, I want to elevate this research. The research is robust. Uh, we know social emotional skills are negatively correlated to mental health challenges 20 years after exposure to these skills, less likely to be on public housing, less likely to do risky, risky sexual behaviors, more likely uh, to be in high quality relationships, uh, more likely to have uh, high paying jobs. I mean, these are the underlying skills uh, that help young people be successful and really drive the thriving youth that we all want for our young people today. And, and, and as we move forward, you know, I, I, again, it, it's, a, it's a relatively nascent movement, but, but I'm, I'm not sure to this point, we as a collective network have done a good enough job elevating whole child development and the research because it is compelling. I think that's, that's part of how we're going to convince people of, of its necessity. So just kind of you, you saying, let me elevate the research is a reminder. We should, we should always be trying to elevate the research because it is, it's compelling. And what we'll do is we'll actually link that exact study when we share out this episode so that folks who want to dive in deep and nerd out like I always do can actually read the information. They can they can interpret it for themselves as well as interpret the findings and see how this incredible longitudinal study actually shows the impact on students over time. I am devastated to be pulling up my last question right now. I really am because this conversation has been really incredible to witness myself um, and also just gives me a lot of a lot to think about. And I hope our listeners feel the same way, a lot to think about, a lot to investigate, a lot to learn. But given, you know, given our conversation, given what we know about the state of student mental health, what advice would you give a student or excuse me, a teacher beginning their career? I'll start with you, David. Look, I think uh, there's a couple of things happening. Reading this article recently that talked about what does it mean to be an early career teacher and the stress of learning kind of some key teaching moves that allow you to see the classroom rather than just react. I think that uh, an early career teacher right now may be feeling like every child needs a therapist. Every child needs a social worker. I wasn't trained in therapy or counseling. I was trained in science education. You know, Jamali talked about that 10 to 90%, you know. The key here is that developing relationships with young people, paying attention to their needs and wants, being able to read the social cues of young people, drive instructional excellence as well. You know, I've, I wrote a paper recently where we looked at social emotional skills of teachers and how that impacted kind of the interactions in the classroom. And you think about social cues, your pacing as, a, as an educator. Uh, you think about relationship building, not just as uh, did you buy candy for your kids, but do you know kids' interests and can you help orient hooks around those interests? You can do it, is the advice that I'd give our, our, our educators. Like, it can be done. Pay attention to your young people. Uh, learn to name the moves that you're making so that you have a sense of confidence and efficacy over them. 
When everything's coming at you at once, you don't have language for something. It's hard to control it. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that a young person has in that classroom uh, is a teacher who knows her content or his content and can express that content in a way that interacts with who that student is in front of them. So I give a sense of appreciation for coming into the field at a really difficult time. I give a sense of optimism that the work that you're doing matters. And I just want to make sure that as a new teacher, you all see and, and recognize that our solutions for our society are going to come from the people who we're educating today. And, and that's a great honor and noble profession to be a part of. I'm going to, I'm going to pause and just let that one breathe a little bit. Just so, I know, so I have gets, chills. I have chills from that. Get all the, all the space that deserves. The, the the first thing I would offer would would not be advice. It would be gratitude. And so I, I just want to, you know, if there's a teacher, an educator who's listening, I know I speak for Haley and David and myself. It's just thank you. Thank you. Thank you right, for your vision, for your commitment, for your compassion, for your reverence, for kids, for your belief in the future. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I was I was trying to find a way to, you know, we, we work on behalf of students. I was trying to find a way to bring students into this conversation. So what I what I'd like to do is our work at NXU again is is anchored around purpose development and, and the power and the liberatory practice of helping young students find, identify, and articulate their purpose. So for, this, for the sake of optimism and hope, I, I would like to read two purpose statements from high school students who both happen to be here in New York City. <clears throat> the first, as a young Muslim woman who values religion, growth, perseverance, and responsibility, and is curious about virtual reality, sign language, and podcasting, my purpose in life is to use my ability to transform ideas into actions and challenge people's perspectives, combined with my love for problem solving, communicating, challenging ideas and reflecting to help people overcome their ignorance by learning about and appreciating the differences in others. And the second, as a young black type one diabetic woman who values loyalty and authenticity and is curious about learning, my purpose in life is to use my skills for mitigating conflicts and expressing myself through words, combined with my love for experimenting and being part of a team to educate others about the importance of reproductive health and become part of the medical community to help women make the best decisions for their bodies. So I, I, I wanna bring them into the conversation because every student has this deep level of purpose and conviction and meaning in their lives. And so my advice to teachers would be to use your academic content, use every interaction, use your feedback, your words of affirmation, your support, your tutoring, your coaching, your conversations in the lunchroom. Use all of that to help your students find what was captured very coherently and with conviction in these statements. Like that's the level where you move from teaching to connecting and inspiring as a human being. That's what our students need. That's what you're best situated to do authentically. And so, so help them 
find their purpose. That's what school is fundamentally about. Okay, so speaking of needing space for a second to just digest that, that was both beautiful and inspiring and incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, Jabali, David, myself, we're all in this game, we're in this, this continued evolution of what we call education because we're here for students. And so I'm really grateful. Jabali, you brought it back to the students here at the end. I think that's a perfect way to sign off today. Um, Jabali and David, thank you so much for sharing so much about yourselves and so much about your work with all of our listeners today. Appreciate you, David. Keep keep shining. Haley, keep shining. Appreciate the good work that both of you do. Grateful. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you, everybody, Peace. for tuning in. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. Give your teachers the support they deserve with iTutor. iTutor's educator community consists of state licensed teachers across every state who can partner with your staff to provide instruction when they can't. After school, late nights, weekends, and summers, our educators got you covered. Head to iTutor.com. Your teachers will thank you.